Welcome to the Littler Workplace Policy Institute podcast. Insider briefings on the latest legislative and regulatory developments affecting employers. Hello, everybody. This is Michael Lutito, the co-chair of Littler's WPI. I'm here with my colleague, Jim Peretti, the former counsel to Ms. Lipnick of the EEOC, who's been with us about a year. And our topic for this particular podcast is what's happening at the uh, Department of Labor, an organization of about, I don't know, 14,000 or so individuals uh, headed up with some policy folks uh, trying to provide some degree of certainty and continuity and process and procedure for our clients that are dealing with all of the different regional offices that have a major impact on uh, all sorts of wage and hour issues and other statutes that the Department of Labor has responsibilities for. So, Jim, I, uh, you called and you said you wanted to talk to me about what's going on at DOL, so here I am. All right. Good morning, Michael. Well, I have to say the Department of Labor, a lot going on in the personnel space in these recent months. Uh, for an agency that doesn't often make the news, we've seen you know quite a bit in Washington around personnel changes at the very tip top, starting with the resignation in mid-July of uh, Labor Secretary Alex Acosta, and then not too shortly thereafter, the president indicating that he would nominate Eugene Scalia to be the new secretary of the Department of Labor, while in the interim we have uh, Deputy Secretary Patrick Pizzella as acting secretary. What does Scalia's nomination mean for the Department of Labor? Who is Gene Scalia, and what is he going to bring to DOL that our clients are going to be interested in? Gene's a management side attorney. He's been practicing labor and employment law for his entire career. He's handled a number of very high-profile cases. He's recognized as extremely knowledgeable in this space and a very aggressive, uh, forceful advocate on behalf of his clients. He's been in private practice most recently, but he actually has served at the Department of Labor in the past in um, different positions. And I think he understands the complexity of the department, understands the interplay between the career people versus the policy political appointee people. It's not so easy to to change this ship uh, because so many of the career people say, let's see, you're my fourth secretary of labor. When am I getting my fifth? We've Um, we've never done it that way in the past. They may not say it quite so directly. And uh, the regions, you know, have their own issues. So, I think that Gene brings a level of of knowledge, of maturity, not only knowledge of the issues, but knowledge of the agency. Because as I'm fond of saying, ideas are simple, execution is hard. So you may have all different kinds of ideas as to how we're going to quote unquote do things differently, but changing the ship is going to be tough. And, you know, he will probably have a very short period of time to be able to do this because obviously we don't know what's going to happen in November of 2020, and then, of course, what's going to happen in, in January of 2021. So, you know, even if the president does win re-election, there's no guarantee that the, the same cabinet officials will stay in place. Sure. So this is a pretty short timeline. So given that, how long do we expect the nomination process to take? Is this one you expect to see him confirmed on the rather quickly, or is this something that may drag out for some period of time into the fall? What are your thoughts on that? Let me answer you this way. The administration has not had a great deal of success of getting nominees, even for high-level positions, such as a cabinet secretary, confirmed quickly. For example, it was only very recently that a secretary of defense was confirmed. There was an absence of seven months in that position, and that's for secretary of defense. So this process could take some time. More specifically, I think that Mr. Scalia's nomination came about quickly. 
It wasn't necessarily foreseeable that Mr. Acosta was going to leave. There's an entire process with respect to paperwork, FBI investigations. Nothing's going to happen in August because the Congress isn't there, you know, for five weeks. Then they come back. Then he's going to have a hearing before Senate help. Then you're going to get floor time. You know, this could go on for some period. Sure. Um, and then there's other kinds of maneuvers that could also take place by different senators because Mr. Scalia has already generated, you know, some, some degree of controversy with, with people that are talking about him. Right. Although it does suggest to me the fact that his name was put into nomination so quickly after uh, the uh, Secretary Acosta's resignation that, you know, whereas in, in some instances the White House has sort of taken a while to put up forward a, a new nominee or has been content to have an acting secretary, the fact that they put Gene Scalia's name out there so quickly suggests to me that this is a, a high priority for the White House. Do you agree? Yes, I, I think it is. And most people you don't know, follow these sorts of things. You and I live in the bubble in Washington, and you know we we think that the regulatory agenda is an important document, and most of our listeners have no idea what we're even discussing. But these regulatory agendas that come out from all of the agencies in one consolidated document a couple of times a year in the spring and then in the fall sets forth what the agency's priorities are, both short-term, medium-term, and long-term. And that's essentially the president's agenda. And the cabinet... Uh, secretary is responsible for making sure that that regulatory agenda for his or her area uh, is actually implemented. I think the one thing that we will see with Scalia is that there will be a real focus on that agenda and making certain that it is implemented between now and the end of this year, assuming it gets confirmed quickly and then into next year. Sure. Well, while we're waiting for that confirmation, who's running the Department of Labor today? And what does that mean for sort of policy priorities that are either in process or some that may be on the horizon? Tell us a little bit about while we you know, wait for the confirmation of a new labor secretary, what's happening at the Department of Labor today? And what does that mean for the folks who are listening on our podcast this morning? Well, the president named Pat Bazilla as the acting secretary. The president has a number of acting people, some act for a lot longer than others, depending upon the confirmation process. Pat is another DOL hand. He's been at the agency. He knows the agency very well. And he has been the Deputy Secretary of Labor under Mr. Acosta for the last couple of years. I think that it's good that the president named him as the acting secretary because a number of the items that the Department of Labor is focused on, they're extremely important to the employer community. And I think that Pat is committed to making sure that that regulatory agenda that I mentioned is implemented. And, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of a delay or concern or paralysis because you don't want to do anything that's controversial because that could impact the nominee and, you know, the questioning and things of that nature. But Pat seems very committed to executing on that agenda. You know, he doesn't start, you know, with, uh, you know, with a brand new baseline these rules and regulations and other things that the agency has been involved in have been ongoing for some period of time. So I think he's committed to seeing them through. And he is on record in many different ways of saying we're going to get these big issues done between now and the end of this year. Well, let me let me ask you this as a Washington insider. Is there a practical difference between being an acting secretary or a confirmed labor secretary? Is is acting secretary Pizzella, is he able to do as much as, as he could as a confirmed secretary? Or in this instance, do you think, you know, it's, they're all rowing, all, you know, all oars are rowing in the same direction and the department's going to continue to sort of move full speed ahead? What, if, what are your thoughts on that, if any? Well, there's no de jure difference between the acting and a fully confirmed person. I think in this instance, the fact that Pat was confirmed by the Senate as the deputy secretary of labor 
adds to his credibility. The fact that he and Mr. Scalia have known one another for a long period of time, they've actually worked together at the department, I think is also very helpful. So I don't think there's going to be a delay in the execution on the key initiatives with Pat running the agency. What are some of those key initiatives? We've talked this morning about you know a number of policy proposals that DOL is moving forward on. Uh, what are some of the most significant and what are the ones you think our listeners would be most interested in hearing about? Well, I, I refer to them as the big three and we'll just take each one. One that's of great concern is the overtime regulation. You would think that the department would pretty much have this in hand because I think so far there's been between the prior administration and this administration somewhere in the neighborhood of six or 700,000 comments that have been filed. There's been seven or eight listening sessions around the country. There's probably a you know, a, a record of documentation on this that's, you know, 23 times war and peace. And the issues are, you know, what is the appropriate salary for exempt status? There was a proposal in the prior administration that it was 47 and change. There was a lawsuit that we filed um, on behalf of 53 or 56 trade associations where a federal court enjoined that. The the current administration came in with a request for information, then a proposed rule where that number is more in the $35,000 range. Comments were filed, and so now we're waiting for a final rule. When, when do you think we might see a final rule setting that final salary threshold? I am very confident, I am highly confident that you will absolutely get it between now and the end of the year, because once you get into 2020, all bets are off, because everything is seen through the presidential election lens. Sure. But again, Pat is very committed to doing it. I think you're going to get it sooner than that. I think it's just going to be a question of the process. And the other thing that they're being very careful about is the issuance of a final rule is not the end game. The real end game here is making sure that the final rule is upheld. Because after all, this is America. And what do we know for certain? Whatever the rule says is going to be litigation. Sure. This is always litigation. It's the real sport of kings. So once again, There'll be the issue as to whether or not the new rule meets the appropriate standards in the Administrative Procedure Act and the like, and that will be fought out over a period of time, perhaps adding to uncertainty. So the issue is not just getting a final rule, it's getting a final rule that's going to withstand scrutiny. So we'll see what that number is. I think it's probably, I mean, obviously I don't know, but I think it's probably going to be in that $35,000, $36,000 range. There is an issue with respect to the so-called highly compensated individual. Uh, the proposal was 147. There was a lot of discussion that that might be too high. We'll see whether or not there's an adjustment. Then there's also an issue with respect to how often do we need to review these kinds of regulations. Um, and there's a suggestion to be every four years. And there's a lot of back and forth as to whether or not the agency can automatically do that or if they engage in rulemaking all over again. So we'll see. And certainly as we get any information or as we, we see new rules, final rules coming from the department as well as when they become effective, we'll be letting clients know um, so they can begin their efforts to, to start to plan for compliance. You That's mentioned correct. The and, if, and if past practice is any predictor of future, we'll put out the webinar notice and in about three minutes, you know, we'll have 20,000 people signed up for it. Um, it's, it's always amazing. This is an area that, that captivates people's attention as well as it should because they have budgets to plan. 
You know, it's easy to say, what's the exempt number? But then the question becomes, do we change? Do we make the individual not exempt? Do we increase the salary to exempt? What's the impact that that then has on compression with the individuals above that person? If the individual is now not exempt, now they may be responsible to get meal times and rest times, and they're treated very differently. And then they've got a supervisor, and the supervisor has to be trained in order to make sure that that's understood. And on and on it goes. So from a compliance standpoint, you know, Washington sits in its bubble and says, the new number is 35,000 or whatever that number is going to be. And then it's up to people like those that are listening to us to implement on that plan. And the idea of 35,000 or whatever is easy. The implementation of that is hard. Sure. It certainly sounds like it's more than just simply posting a number on the wall. You mentioned the big three. So that's, uh, we've talked about overtime. What are the other two that are in the in process that you think folks are most interested in? Another one is joint employer, uh, which I, sometimes I think is my middle name. This is another issue uh, that has captivated folks' attention. There's usually some confusion on joint employer because you have the NLRB that's engaged in rulemaking on joint employer, which we're not discussing here. Sure. Um, and then we have the Department of Labor issue with respect to joint employer. Prior administration had issued some guidances on joint employer that were very favorable from uh, the advocacy's point of view if you're representing employees. And there was a lot of opposition to that. And so now the department is engaged in rulemaking. Uh, One of the problems is that the department really hasn't addressed joint employer since the 40s. And there's, there's really no particular guidance. And then there's additional confusion because the circuit courts have adopted four or five different tests. And there was hope that the Supreme Court was going to take a case a few years ago in order to clarify the split in the circuits, but that did not happen. So, you know, companies, again, you know, from a compliance effort, they want to do what's right, but they say, well, we have a test in the the 25th Circuit versus the 36th Circuit, and they're different, so we have to treat people differently. That's not the way companies operate. And as a practical matter, just taking a step back, what does it mean to be a joint employer, and why is that significant to to folks who may be listening today, at least at the Department of Labor and for purposes of things like the Fair Labor Standards Act? Well, the joint employment uh, situation uh, means that the actions of one organization or company become attributable to the other organization. So if company number one, you know, violates the, uh, the FLSA by paying people off the clock, for example, then that becomes the responsibility of company number two, because in the eyes of the law, they're not two companies, they're one. And that's obviously a very difficult position for the second company. Sure. I can use that terminology because they probably have absolutely no knowledge of what the first company is doing. Yeah, it sounds like I'd be, I could, if I'm a joint employer, I'm potentially on the hook for uh, decisions and payroll practices that I may have no part of uh, making, let alone executing. Is that, is that a fair that, statement? That's correct. And so the, the question always revolves around this whole issue of control. We're not going to get weedy with respect to the tests. But again, the different tests from the circuits have been highly problematic. And some are much more focused on some aspects of control, some on others. And, you know, companies can comply with just about anything as long as they're told what it is that they're supposed to comply with. Sure. I know you could deliver chapter and verse on joint employment, but I did want to get to, you mentioned there was a third significant FLSA proposal out there at the Department of Labor. What's that? Well, the third one deals with, uh, with regular rate. 
I understand regular rate is if I'm paying someone, you know, I know that if I'm an employer and I have someone working overtime, I have to pay them time and a half. So if I'm paying them currently $20 an hour, if they work over 40 hours in a week for those extra overtime hours, I have to pay them time and a half. That's $30 an hour. That doesn't seem very complicated to me. That's the regular rate. What's, what's the big deal here? I don't understand what all the complexity is. But there's other forms of remuneration because as companies try to distinguish themselves in the marketplace, when the fight for talent is as fierce as it is today, there may be a gym membership. There may be, you know, some other kinds of goodies that are provided that may not be in the form of direct compensation that's going into the paycheck, but nonetheless are of significant value, you know, to the individual. And then the question becomes, are those other goodies, you know, part of that regular rate? Because if they are, then your calculation for the overtime as you just hypothesized, is incorrect. And then there could be substantial liability. And the regular rate issue has not been addressed by the department for quite a number of years. And as compensation practices has evolved with a variety of different mechanisms in order to enhance the base pay, because it's really about gross comp and not just what's in the base pay or total comp, there's needs for clarification on this. So if I'm an employer who chooses to, say, provide some tuition reimbursement or employee discounts or things, you're telling me that conceivably that's not only going to impact what I spend at the front end, but also how I calculate overtime. Boy, if that, if that doesn't sound like the definition of no good deed going unpunished and, let's, you know, let's kill all the lawyers and bring them into the mix, that, uh, that sounds like it's a little more complicated than, than I initially thought it was. Well, you know, I live by three rules. You know, nothing's easy. Um, is, uh, is one of them. And certainly this is a nothing easy category. So I think it'll be good to get that clarification. And I think for our listeners, it'll be an opportunity to get your comp people involved, assuming you have a separate comp department, or maybe you're the HR professional that's handling all of these issues. But that'll be an opportunity to address that too. Very quickly, because I know we're coming up on uh, the end of our time here together this morning, uh, talk to me very briefly about opinion letters. Uh, what are they? What does the department do with them? I know that we just had one recently issued for uh, sleep time for long-haul truckers. What is an opinion letter? How, do you, how does one go about getting one, and how can they be useful? Opinion letters were staples of the Department of Labor for a number of years. During the prior administration, they stopped issuing them, and this administration has started again. So they deal with very discrete concerns that a particular employer, perhaps an industry, has. And what you do is you send a letter into the department. It's not just on wage and hour. It could be on any of the issues that the Department of Labor deals with on any of the statutes. And you say, here's our set of facts, and we'd like some clarity on this issue. And the department then issues an opinion letter. And that opinion letter, based upon the facts that are given that are reiterated in the letter, that becomes your defense. That's solid gold. And you can rely upon that. And it may not just have implications for you, company A, but if the practice of company A is duplicated, for example, by many companies in that particular industry setting, like home care, it can be extremely important. So we're waiting for certain opinion letters. There's one involving a Department of Defense issue with internships, and there's many others that are being considered. So if you've got a particular issue like that that may be unique to your company or maybe something on an industry standard, you know, there's one, for example, on the delivery uh, reimbursement rates for, uh, for pizza folks. You know, if you're not in the pizza delivery business, you don't really care. But if you're in the pizza delivery business, this is a huge big deal. Uh, so if you've got those types of issues, you can certainly talk to us or talk to counsel of your own choosing, and, and that can get submitted. 
I was about to say, as co-chair of the Workplace Policy Institute, if we have folks who are listening this morning who think, hmm, I may have an issue that's worth bringing to the Department of Labor or seeking some guidance or an opinion, should they reach out to you? Should they reach out to others? Well, they can certainly uh, reach out to, uh, to either one of us. You know, we try very hard to give our clients a voice. Sometimes clients are very concerned about speaking. So, for example, sometimes these opinion letters are, are written on behalf of, a, of an agency or an association. And this way, you can ensure some of the anonymity because some companies are concerned that if they raise the issue that there may be some retaliation or the like. And if you've got active litigation going on with the department, uh, they're not going to entertain an opinion letter. Well, it sounds like the, the months to come are going to see a lot of eyes and activity on at the Department of Labor as we see you know, new personnel put into place and continuing uh, work on some of the policy initiatives of the administration. Thank you for your time with us this morning. I hope, this is, uh, I hope our listeners have found it useful. As always, uh, you have the last word. Thank you, and thank you for everything you're doing for WPI, and thank our, our listeners and our clients for having the confidence in us that they do, and we're happy to help you at the federal level and also at the states. Terrific. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.